Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Thank you, John. And good morning, everyone. Uh, good morning. I'm Gareth, and I'm looking forward to getting stuck into the book of Romans with you as we start our new series this morning. And as we begin, let's pray again for God's help as we turn to this letter. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is good and true, that it shows us our sin and shows us your great mercy and grace. Father, we ask that you would bring us life today as we study it together. Please help us together to understand what your word says, and please help us to trust in it. Amen. Are you sure? Are you sure? That is a, a short, straightforward, and often punishing question that I know that everyone in this room will have asked at some point or other. It's straightforward, but punishing, because we all know what it means. It's a question of doubt, isn't it? Uh, and often a declaration of a lack of confidence. We can often ask that question uh, innocently enough. We're entering the summer holidays, which I think are a real catalyst for an are you sure um, example. Uh, are you sure that all of this will fit in the car? It's often asked as you stare at the kind of incredible piles of luggage piled up in the hallway. Are you sure that we've packed everything? Which is only ever asked when you're 20 minutes down the motorway. There's no turning back at all. It would be impossible. Or are you sure it's this way to the beach? Which is always asked when the five-minute wander to the beach turns into a 30-minute hike across the headlands. And each of those are you know, innocent enough, are you sure? There's that sense of, of doubt, the suspicion that everything's not going to be okay and a lack of confidence in the person, or their, or their packing, or their leading. And sometimes that's very justifiably so, or maybe at least it is in our family. Um, but it's not just a question we ask each other, is it? It's a question that we can ask ourselves, too. Many of our young people are away at Unite Camp this weekend, and they'll know the feeling of this question all too well, as they've sat in exam halls over the past term, desperately trying to be sure of facts, dates, and equations. I'll stop before we go back into any trauma. Um, we, we ask ourselves if we're sure about all sorts of things, if we're confident, if we're making the right choices, if we're making the right decisions. And I'm sure that you know the painful feeling of being unsure too, the restless distraction of not knowing if a choice is good or bad, constantly running scenarios through your head, trying to work out 
if you're sure that you've got things right. Lacking confidence in things that you've done or are thinking of doing. And on top of all of that, are you sure is often a spiritual question. The world around us is constantly asking if you're sure, if we're sure that the gospel is good. If you're sure it's worth following Jesus. It might not be an obvious question all the time, and it's often subtler than outright asking you directly. But the world will ask, and it will make you ask. When we see others, others thriving without the gospel, or when it's hard to follow Jesus, and the world is still full of the same pain. Or maybe when the world has even more pain for following Jesus than not following him, and we can feel that question building. Am I sure it's, it's worth following Jesus? And sometimes we find ourselves asking even deeper, are you sure, questions in the silence of our own hearts. Am I sure that Jesus died to save me? Am I sure that I really believe? Am I sure that any of this is true? Those are real and serious questions that everyone who trusts in Jesus will face at some point or other to some degree, whether we face them from outside or inside. And when those questions come, we really need to find good answers. We need something external that will redirect our doubts and our worry and our struggle to find confidence. Just like when you finally see that sign that's just telling you the beach is just there, that you've arrived and you breathe that sigh of relief. We need an external signpost to give us confidence back, to help us to answer those questions with a resounding yes. We need external affirmation to tell us that we're on the right track. And this chapter, Romans 8, that we're going to be looking at together over the next six weeks is the external affirmation we need. It will give us confidence in the face of a great many questions. It will show us why we can have confidence in the gospel now, how we can live in that confidence, and why we can have confidence for the future too. As a preaching team, we're looking forward to getting stuck into this letter and this chapter with you. Just seeing just why we can all be confident in Jesus. And we're praying that as we study God's word this summer, it will lead us to loudly and boldly answer, yes, I am sure. But this morning, we're starting in the middle of the letter to the Romans, in a passage that begins with a therefore, which means that we're jumping into the middle of Paul's argument and the middle of his logical flow. So I think it'll be useful to take a few moments as we begin this series to orientate ourselves to the letter to the Romans and just see where this chapter fits in. And we're going to do that by looking back at where Romans began, and we'll have a look at our destination in Romans 8, where we're heading. And if you've got a notice sheet, you'll see there's a little outline in there that takes us through that as well. So do keep that open if that's useful. Now, Romans begins, as most letters do, with an introduction from the author, in this case, Paul. As a bit of a summary of why he's writing the letter. And this summary concludes with a terrific statement about the gospel towards the middle of chapter 1. Uh, let me read that for us. It's going to be on the screen as well, so you don't need to flip back there. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. 
For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This statement, we've already thought about this morning, haven't we, in the book reviews. This statement is really the theme for the whole letter to the Romans. And what's key for us this morning is that from the start, Paul tells us how we should feel. And it tells us how he feels and how we should feel about the gospel. He starts with these words, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He is not ashamed. You could say he is confident in the gospel. He is totally sure of it. And he gives us his initial reasons for this. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it works. The gospel saves. And so Paul will loudly and proudly speak to anyone and everyone about it. Paul is here giving the gospel a rave review. And we all know that experience, don't we? When you try something new, whether it's you know getting up early or taking up running, whatever the new life hack is, and it, and it works, and you'll find every opportunity to slip into conversation about your new habit. Well, Paul here has even more reason to be confident in the gospel. It works because it's God's power. And so he goes on to talk about it. He goes on the letter to help us to say the exact same thing, to give us reasons to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The opening chapters of Romans show us why we need the gospel, and they put into really terrifying detail the just judgment of God that is coming, until Paul reveals in chapter 3 the incredible salvation that Jesus has won, and how he can make people who are not right with God to be people who are right with God. From there, he unpacks and explains what it will mean to trust in the gospel and how it is that Jesus' death on the cross really can and really will save everyone who has faith. And then he shows us how Christ's sacrifice changes the status and experience of the believer. And after all that, we get to the therefore in chapter 8. Now, that is uh, really the shortest whistle-stop tour you could probably ever take of Romans. And I'd encourage you to go back this week and reread the first seven chapters as we enjoy studying this letter together to see where chapter 8 fits in. And this, therefore, picks up lots of ideas that have come already in Romans. In Romans 8, we're going to pick them up uh, and conclude much of the big first section of his letter before he moves things forward following So we're going to see some of the ideas I've just mentioned there in a bit more detail as we look at these verses together and over the rest of the series. As Paul gives this first big conclusion in his letter, we can look back and know that what's written here is to help us not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to be confident. And let's have a look at where we're heading as well. Just flick forward to page in your Bibles to the end of chapter 8. This It is the destination and the point this chapter will bring us to. Simon's already mentioned it. Uh, Let me read it for us now as we look at verse 38. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor the heights nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We see again a similar theme to the opening verses. Paul again gives us his feeling, his opinion on the gospel. And here he is convinced, he is sure, he is confident. He's going to close this chapter stating again his confidence in the security of the gospel. And just look back at those verses. Paul is so convinced that he can say that nothing can take away our salvation. Not death, not life, not angels, not demons, not the present, not the future, not powers or height or depth or anything at all in all creation. Paul's list here at the end of chapter 8 is exhaustive. No beings, no realms, no power, nothing at all of time and space can separate us from God's love. It's a very bold declaration of confidence, isn't it? Paul's assurance in the gospel is complete. And Paul wants us to come to the same conclusion throughout this chapter, throughout his letter to the Romans. Over the next six weeks, as we work our way through Romans chapter 8, we'll be given every reason to be as confident as Paul in our security and in the power of the gospel. I hope that excites you for our summer series, whether you're already feeling confident in the gospel or if you're if you're really feeling those painful and real questions we thought about earlier, we hope and pray that we will have a renewed confidence and assurance in the hope of the gospel together. And if this is your first time with us this morning, or if you're not yet convinced that the gospel is good and powerful for salvation, then I hope this chapter gives you reason to be as convinced as Paul. The good news of Jesus' rescue and the hope of eternity that it brings are completely trustworthy and worthy of your total confidence. That's a bold claim. It's my claim this morning because it's Paul's claim in these verses. So please do listen in as we go and listen to see if this is something that you could be sure of. So let's jump in to the beginning of Romans chapter 8 and our first point, no condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul wants to give us confidence in the gospel. And he starts with a huge statement. No condemnation. It's a big statement, isn't it? So let's think about what it means there to be no condemnation. To condemn something simply means, it's kind of most simple, to say and call it bad. To be condemned is to be described as bad. You could think about how we use that language day to day, and and you might think that we actually don't talk about condemning very much. Because it's not really day to day language, is it? It's quite serious language. It's reserved for big and serious accusations. uh, When one nation condemns another nation's choice that's quite a big moment in our world isn't it and it's a word that's full of judgment and guilt there's always a reason when someone is condemned the guilt or the action of the other party is always plainly seen for there to be such a reaction no one is condemned without their actions or their beliefs being obvious and to have no condemnation then means that there can be no charge against you. There's no element of life where someone is going to look at it, point at that and say, that is bad. 
To be described as having no condemnation means there's not a single bad thing that could be said about you. Do you see how big that is? It's a statement of absolute and total innocence. It is unlike anything in our world. In our world, our misdeeds and our guilt, they follow us about, don't they? They never go away. So to have this level of innocence and purity is really outrageous. But it's even more stunning in the context of the letter to the Romans. We've mentioned uh, already that, that Paul spends the first three chapters explaining the terrifying just judgment of God. Well, well, let's take a look back at that in chapter 3. Look at the screen at the conclusion that Paul draws about humanity. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one seeks, who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There was no one who does good, not even one. This is the standing of the world before God. Everyone is condemned totally and completely. If to condemn is simply to call someone or something bad, then you couldn't be worse than Paul describes in these verses. This is Paul's conclusion, and it is God's verdict. So how can Paul declare that there is no condemnation here, having shown that there is so much condemnation? What changes between chapter 3 and chapter 8 to change his conclusion? Well, there's one very small, very key word in the first verse of our passage. The word now. There is now no condemnation. It is only now that there is no condemnation. There has been a great movement from then to now. Before, there was condemnation. In fact, you could actually turn this verse around it and say that before, there was all and only condemnation. But now, now there is no condemnation. The whole history of the world has shifted with this now. A seismic change in the order of creation. And that change is seen not just in the pages of our Bible, but across our whole world as the calendar flips from BC to AD, before and now. We live in the time of now. We live in the time where there can be no condemnation. But it's not universal. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who believe in Christ, who trust in the gospel as the power for salvation, face no condemnation. He is the great switch in time that brings about this now. And if this morning you are trusting in him, then these words are true for you. The wonderful, joyful relief of not being condemned is true for you. That's what those words, those who are in Christ Jesus, mean. Those who have thrown their lot in with him, who have said, yes, I believe that Jesus' death on the cross saves me. I believe that he is the right king of the universe, and I want to follow him. They are those who are in Christ Jesus. And every one of us can claim this wonderful, glorious, total lack of condemnation. As we continue, we're going to see Paul evidence this. We're going to show us, he's going to show us just how we can have this complete confidence in this new position of innocence. But before we do, just take a moment 
Think about what it means for those words to be true of you if you're trusting in Jesus. You are not condemned. You are not guilty before God. God has no reason to call you bad. In the eyes of God, there is not a single fault that could even possibly be condemned. This is a total and complete security. Your slate is crystal clear. Your record is blank. What an incredible standing to have before God. If you trust in Jesus this morning, then that is your standing. You may not always feel like this is true. It might be that even as you read these words, you dismiss them. Just, just slightly. I think it's a nice thought, but, but we really we know our own lives, don't we? We know our own sin, and we can see how our lives are full of condemnable thoughts, words, and actions. It can feel slightly ridiculous to apply such bold and sweeping language to our lives. If that's how you feel when you approach this passage, then you're not alone. Paul himself describes feeling just like that in the verses immediately before in chapter 7, where he wrestles with the feelings of failure, of sin. I was being convinced that the gospel is true and wanted to live with Jesus as king. He describes the crushing and present reality of sin, of the temptation to do the opposite of a right, perfect, and innocent life. Take a look at his conclusions to that chapter immediately before our passage this morning at verse 24 of chapter 7, just above um, where Romans 8 starts. It says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. With barely a pause for breath, Paul moves from the felt reality of being a wretched man, a man unworthy of being described as in Christ Jesus, to exulting in the innocence he has been given. He can do that only because of Christ. Jesus, who rescues wretched people and takes away their condemnation, who makes them right before God, totally and completely. If you feel some of that pain and that anguish and the clash of these verses in your life, then I want you to know that these words are for you. They are for everyone who believes. In Jesus, we no longer face condemnation before a just and righteous God. So let's follow Paul's logic in the next few verses, and let's see just why this statement is true and why we can be confident in it. Because he wants to show us that it's all because of Christ, which is our second point, because of Christ. See, Paul immediately and swiftly moves on to show us why those who are in Christ Jesus face no condemnation. And the first reason he gives is that they are freed. Take a look at verse 2 with me. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. It is through Jesus that Paul has been set free. Before, Paul was trapped. He was under the power of sin and death. His only choice was to sin, and his only certain destination was condemnation and death. That law, or that power, 
ruled over him. But in the now, he is freed. He has been freed from the power for a new power. There's a new power, a new law and control, the power of the spirit of life. Now he lives under the spirit rather than in sin. Now his only certain destination is not condemnation, but the opposite. He now has, and he looks forward to life. The relationship with sin has been completely changed. Its power has been broken and removed at last. There is a way to live that doesn't just stack condemnation and judgment on condemnation and judgment. If you are trusting in Jesus this morning, then you too have been freed from the power of sin and death. You too have been freed from the spirit of life. There is now a new power over you, one that leads away from death towards life. Just see how this comes about. This freedom comes from the Spirit through Christ. Again, we're going to see in just a moment what it is about Christ that brings this freedom. But first we see that this is the work of the Spirit. In this chapter, we're going to see the Spirit's work again and again. As we come to understand the Spirit's role in our salvation and life, this is going to give us confidence in the gospel. And the first thing we see in this chapter about the Spirit is that he, through Christ, brings about our freedom. The Spirit is affecting the now we've already thought about in us. He is removing the old powers and condemnation and replacing them with himself as our uh, law and as our governor and as our power. And Paul is presenting this as a bit of a light-for-light swap. The law of sin and death is swapped out for the law of the spirit of life. But it's not quite a light-for-like. It may fit in a similar way, but it's an undeniable upgrade. This new law changes the course of our lives and brings us life. No longer are we trapped with only condemnation and death. Now we are alive to live. All because of Christ. It is only he that can cause this change to come about, and all because of his sacrifice. We see Paul explain that sacrifice in verse 3. He does that first by showing us what it is that doesn't save us, and it's not the law. describes the law as powerless to save us. That's not because the law is wrong or incomplete or poorly designed, but because the law has been weakened by our own sin. As people who are trapped under the power of sin and death, the law is hopelessly weak. When Paul is talking about the law here, he's talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about the law in the first five books of the Bible that describe how God's people were to live in order to be right with him. Uh, Those first few books of the Bible, they list the rituals and the rules and the sacrifices. And in doing so, they show the attitude and heart that are required to be right with God. And when confronted with our sin, that law becomes powerless to save us. Let me try and give you an example of what I think this means. Imagine I wanted to make a cake. Uh, My wife's birthday is coming up in the next month. So it's about the time I take my annual foray into the kitchen to attempt such a thing. Uh, I'll be honest, I'm an inexperienced baker. So I take things steady and I pick a nice, easy recipe. Something like Mary Berry's Victoria Sandwich generally feels like a good bet. As an inexperienced baker, I like to make sure I'm very well set up before I start, uh, carefully weighing out every ingredient so I know where I'm going, checking that I do know the difference between a teaspoon and a tablespoon, 
because I have made that mistake before. Um, and then once everything is set up and ready, I can begin. Now imagine, imagine the kitchen table, it's bedecked with all of the ingredients all laid out, the oven is preheated, everything is ready. And then I decide to leave the room and I invite my three-year-old son to finish the cake for me whilst I go and do something else. I leave him with the recipe, point it out on the table, and I go off and leave him to finish. Now, he's three years old, uh, so he can't read. It would be a disaster. He would try. He would be very enthusiastic in his trying. He might mix some of the ingredients together. He would break the eggs. Um, and for about 30 seconds, it might look like things are going in the right direction. He may even attempt to put something in the oven, which would be very dangerous. Um, it would look for a moment like things would go well, but they wouldn't because he is three. In that situation, the very clear and excellent recipe is powerless because it is weakened by the three-year-old attempting to carry it out. There is no hope that the recipe could ever be completed. Now, that is a slightly, well, quite trivial example of what Paul is describing here. That is how helpless the law is to save, to remove our condemnation, because we have weakened it. We have made it useless, like a recipe in the hand of a three-year-old. But what the law is powerless to do, God does. Take a look at verse 3 again with me. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so, he condemned sin in sinful man. God overrules the powerless law and sends his own son to rescue. Now we see the third person of the Trinity, God the Father and his involvement in our salvation. He sends his son in the likeness of sinful man. The Spirit works through Christ on us, as we've seen, and God works by sending his Son to us. As Paul begins to give us this confidence, we mustn't miss how every person of the Trinity is involved in bringing about our right standing before him. And that should give us more confidence. So God sends his Son in the likeness of sinful man. Jesus came as a man. He looked like us. He experienced like us, took on our humanity. He puts himself under the law, but without the weakness of the sinful nature. Jesus comes in every way like us, but he never sins. So he never faces condemnation for his own actions. There really is nothing to point to. There's no moment of miscalculation, no moment of thoughtlessness or selfishness. He is totally like us, yet completely unlike us because he is without sin. And so he can be the perfect sin offering described in this verse. Now in the law of Moses, those first five books of the Bible, sin offerings were required often. They were to take away the people's sin and make them right with God again. The law was very, very clear about the requirements of a sin offering. It was to be an animal uh, without any defect, the purest and most perfect animal to take the ultimate price for God's people. The people's sin condemned them to death, but God made a way for a pure animal to take that punishment instead, again and again 
and again and again. But now, now God has sent a better, more perfect sin offering. Not a bull or a lamb, but his very own son. The unblemished animal is a good picture of the purity required to remove condemnation from people, but it's not enough. It's not good enough, not pure enough. It is not a good replacement for mankind. I mean, how, how could it be? It's not in our likeness. It, it's not experienced the same pressures, temptations, and desires as people do. It's an animal. But Jesus did. He was sent by God as a man. He lived an ordinary life with every ordinary temptation, struggle, and challenge. Yet he never gave in. He was never under the power of sin and death. And so when he is killed as the perfect sin offering on the cross, he doesn't just buy a brief moment of forgiveness until the next sin strikes. He wins total forgiveness for us. Look at the result at the end of verse 3. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. There is condemnation, but it is not for us, but for the sin within us. Jesus calls sin bad. He declares it to be obsolete, to be judged and destined for destruction. And we use this language of condemnation a bit like this sometimes, uh, to say when something is marked for destruction, you know, an old boiler, condemned, it's unsafe, it's not to be used anymore, it needs to be removed. And that is exactly what has happened to sin in sinful man. In his death on the cross, Jesus destroys sin. He removes it, he takes away its power, because he dies and he rises again. He breaks the power of sin and death. And so we can be freed from his power. We can be given a new law to live under, the law of the spirit of life. See, Jesus changes our very nature. Now, as sin done away with, we can be right with God, and we can have his righteousness. And this righteousness, in verse 4, is the end result of our freedom in Christ's sacrifice. This is what the freedom of verse 2 is for. It is for a righteous life. Let me remind us uh, of what this last verse says. It says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. See, the Lord's requirements were never wrong. They were weakened by us as we tried to enact them. But now... With sin's power broken, these requirements can be met in us. And where the requirements of the law are met, there can be no condemnation. You cannot condemn where there is no guilt, where there are no laws broken. Christ's death on the cross has brought about a new righteousness. Not a partial right standing before God, but a total and complete righteousness. This is a new life that is lived in right relationship with God, restored by Christ's work. And this righteousness is yours if you live according to the Spirit. If you are trusting in Christ, then you are living according to the Spirit, and you are facing no condemnation. You are under the power of the Spirit of life. Not because of anything that you've done, but because Christ has condemned your sin, removed it, and its power. And this, this is a one-off. It's completely unlike the sacrifices of the law, which were repeated again and again. That was before the then, but this is the now. Now you can be righteous before God. The righteous requirement of the law is fully met. Right standing with God, completely assured. 
And not because your life has suddenly looked different and it's suddenly living in the right direction. And it's not that God has chosen to ignore or forget what you've done. It's all because Christ has been the perfect sin offering for us. He has condemned and removed our sin. And now we can live with and for him. And over the next few weeks in Romans chapter 8, we're going to really drill into what that life will look like. And we're going to see very clearly how it changes it for us. Let's conclude this first part of Romans 8 together. Because we've covered a lot of ground in just a few verses. They're dense. and They're brimming full of incredible truths about God and about his work in saving us. We've seen how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together have worked to cause, enact, and affect our salvation through Jesus' death on the cross in our place. That's our sin offering. We've seen how that completely transforms our existence, bringing us out from death and into life, and how this completely removes our condemnation as we become righteous before God. And so, you can be confident in the gospel. It is powerful, and it is complete. It completely and utterly saves us. I hope you've begun to see that this morning, to see that the gospel is totally secure. The work of God for our salvation. And how it creates this amazing security for the believer, without condemnation, guiltless before God. If you aren't trusting in Christ's sacrifice for your life this morning, then I hope you see this as an invitation. This security is there for you to take hold of. It is found only in the work of Jesus. If this is new to you, then do chat to me or to Simon or to a member of the welcome team, and we'd love to talk to you about the confidence we have in the gospel. And I'd encourage you to read it. Read through the rest of this letter to the Romans and see for yourself that it is worth your confidence. And if you are trusting Jesus, I hope, like Paul, that this confidence in the gospel leads you to be unashamed of it. This confidence can and will mean two things for us. It will mean that we can speak the gospel to others and we can have peace. If we have this confidence like Paul, then we will give the gospel that rave review. It's better than the ultimate life hack, so of course we'll want to tell everyone about it. If we're really confident that it is the power of God to save, as we've seen already this morning and we're going to see, then we won't be able to stop talking about it. This confidence in the gospel is what we need if we're going to see our friends and our city trusting in Jesus. Because we need to believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It has saved us totally. It can save others totally. So we can speak it in confidence. And it will bring us peace. It will bring us peace from the are you sure questions. Peace from the doubts in our own faith in God's grace. As we grow in our confidence in Christ's work, we'll be able to rest, trusting that he has completely and totally rescued us. And he has made us righteous in God's eyes. That peace might not come overnight. We'll need to keep looking back to God's word and the affirmation that it gives us. But knowing this gospel more clearly, seeing the work of Christ more clearly, is going to bring us peace as God works to give us confidence in him. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together that these things be true of us. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thank you for sending your Son to be our perfect sin offering, to condemn sin and make us right with you. We pray that we will know the confidence that comes from this truth. And we ask that this confidence will lead us to speak about the gospel to others and to rest in its peace. Amen.